Welcome back. Our guest this week is noted pollster Richard Juba. Our lead story, Democrats pushing for police reforms. On the OTR panel, we have Nancy Kaffer, Zachary Gorchow, and Rick Pluton. Sit in with us as we get the inside out off the record. Production of Off the Record is made possible in part by the following. Business Leaders for Michigan has a strategic plan to make Michigan a top 10 state in the nation for jobs, personal income, and a healthy economy. Learn more at michigansroadtotop10.com. And now, this edition of Off the Record with Tim Skubik. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Off the Record. And we have a great panel and a great guest and some interesting stories to kick around this morning. As we tape here in Studio C, we have Rick and Zach and uh, Nancy. Uh, Let's start with the Democrats. House Democrats and Senate Democrats are pushing police reform. Here's what they would like to see passed. There's no, in no way, shape, or form am I saying that all police officers are bad. We know that there are just a few bad apples. Starting a bill package with a press conference and uh, no Republican support in a Republican majority sounds like a recipe for um, that legislation withering on the vine. In the wake of the death of George Floyd in Minnesota and the death of Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky, Michigan House Democrats have now introduced a 16-bill package that would, in part, ban chokeholds, no-knock warrants, order the police to use body cameras, and permit citizens to sue police officers who use, quote, excessive force, which has produced this statistic. Over 1,127 people were killed last year by police. Only 16 officers were ever charged with a crime. That's 1%. Also attending the news conference were relatives of Ms. Taylor who make the case for these proposed changes in our state. We ask Michigan politicians to consider all the mothers in this country, black and brown, who are not able to go back to normal after their loved one has had their life cut short to police brutality and excessive use of force tactics that are outdated because normal does not exist for them anymore. But the Republican chair of the House Judiciary Committee counters that chokeholds are not taught in Michigan and suing police officers will discourage others from getting into the business. Representative Fuller calls the Democratic package an overreaction to national events. When one or two or three bad incidents sort of quote unquote define law enforcement to a national and a state audience, well then I think we've really lost perspective. and. I will always say that making legislation, making snap legislation based on a couple bad incidents is a bad idea. So you don't believe there is a police brutality problem in Michigan? Yes, I I absolutely agree. There is not a problem in Michigan. While these headlines grabbing police brutality incidents did not happen in Michigan, that does not mean they are isolated incidents and that we do not have anything that we need to protect here in our state. Representative Yancey reports the two Republican legislative leaders do like some elements of the package, but not all of them. So at this read, a bipartisan vote on all 16 bills is not apparent today. All right, Nancy, so uh, where are we on this stuff? Uh, the, the Democrats claim there is popular support for banning chokeholds in the electorate. My sense was in the, the Republican ranks of the legislature, eh, this is not a, a done deal, right? Um, I think, yeah, I think there is popular support for a lot of this stuff. And I think furthermore, that some of the folks who are opposing these reform measures should talk to cops. Uh, I spent a while talking to a lot of police executives for a uh, 
editorial we did, we're doing a year-long series about criminal justice reforms. And none, none, of, none of the police people I talk to are under the impression that things are fine. They all feel like um, they all feel like they, they shy away from using the word reform. They like to say police improvements, but they want better training. They want to do a better job. They want to have a better relationship with the community. So I, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like the, the perspective of police organizations is being reflected in this just blanket opposition to any of these measures. Mr. Gorchow. Well, you've got two very different approaches happening in the House and Senate right now. Uh, in the Senate, there was a, a bi bipartisan, but quite not nearly as far reaching package that was introduced um, and was the subject of, of a hearing this week. Uh, this package that the, in the House was introduced with, with only Democratic support. You really have a very diff a big difference in the membership of the House and Senate Republican caucuses. There's a number of former uh, law enforcement officers uh, that includes the Speaker of the House who serve in the House. You don't have that uh, in the Senate. And, uh, you know, Representative Filler, whether you agree or disagree with his approach, is, is probably right that if you, you know, on a subject this um, volatile, if you introduce legislation that has no Republican support in a Republican majority chamber, it's probably in a lot of trouble, whereas the package that's over in the Senate, uh, I think, stands probably a pretty good chance of coming out of the Senate. It has the support of the Senate Judiciary and Public Safety Chair, Roger Victory, uh, a number of Democrats, but it doesn't have like, things like the qualified immunity piece and addressing that. that. That's a huge difference between what the House plan has and the Senate plan has. And, and Zachary, that's a good point. And Rick, that is, a, that is a sticky wicket for the law enforcement community, is it not? Oh, it's, it's a huge deal. And what you're seeing on the House side, I, I think, is uh, um, people creating negotiating positions that, um, you know, that, that they'll be able to uh, move from that uh, law enforcement in, in many respects feels like um, its integrity is being attacked. And there are things that law enforcement is willing to do, but lines that they're not willing to cross, obviously making um, officers um, susceptible to lawsuits would be just a, a, a huge blockade in terms of uh, in terms of getting all of this done. But we're seeing, especially on the House side, um, more setting uh, negotiating positions than the sort of cooperative effort that we're seeing on the uh, Senate side. Likewise, on the issue of no-fault car insurance, lots of negotiation going on on there and lots of complaints from some people, Nancy, who are concerned about the lack of coverage and what impact that could have on the quality of their lives. I mean, it seems like a fairly straightforward you know, fix. The, this no-fault legislation, which was supported by both parties, uh, has this thing in it that is going to cut the reimbursement rates for at-home care for people who have been catastrophically injured in car accidents by 45 percent, which the folks who provide the in-home care um, say is, is unsustainable. And I mean, that's, that's common sense. Like if you cut any businesses operating, you know, ability to pay its uh, employees by 45 percent, they have a real hard time continuing to staff. Um, there are some bills uh, up that that would fix this, that would grandfather in existing care operations, and they're facing a July 1st deadline where this is going to kick in. A lot of care providers are warning that they're going to have to shut down. Um, but you know, TikTok guys, time is running out if they want to they want to get this done. Well, TikTok is right. Is this not Rick a, a ticking time bomb for people out there that uh, may not be able to get the care that they want? Oh, of course it is. That, uh, um, but but. I, 
to be expected um, because we're changing the whole platform that our insurance, at least when it comes to uh, catastrophic coverage, is built on. And so clearly there were going to be problems. And the issue is that like the rest of the insurance system, it's very complex. And so coming up with a fix is going to, is might take longer than it takes to get to July 1st. I mean, what I'm looking to see is what kind of stopgap that uh, we, we might see created in order to, uh, in order to address that. Zachary, I, I think this is a, you know, oh. the, the bill is coming due on, on this statute, you know, when it was passed, in the spring of 2019 and signed into law uh, on the deck of the Grand Hotel, you know, Governor Whitmer and the bipartisan legislative leadership was very busy focusing on the rate reductions that this was going to mean for the motoring public. But everybody knew, like none, and I don't think none of these elected officials should attempt to act surprised by what's happening now. Everybody knew in two years this fee schedule was going to hit like. Uh, a sack of bricks. And it's finally two years later. Uh, and now the bill's coming due. Uh, you know, the governor seems pretty uncomfortable. You know, she already kind of put a finger in her natural constituency by signing uh, in their eye by by signing this in the first place. But she was able to get the uh, positive of producing rates, which is there's been a clamor for in the public. And now she's saying, well, I'm concerned. This is, a, I understand this is a scary moment for people. Um, but, you know, right now, I think, you know, certainly Mike Shirky, the Senate Majority Leader, seems completely disinterested in addressing this. He wants to see if this takes effect. You know, the Republicans seem very, they're voicing a lot of skepticism that these uh, brain trauma clinics, severe injury clinics are actually going to shut down. That's what these clinics have threatened for a long time. They do have to give, I think, a 30-day notice that they're going to shut down. The first one of those did occur yesterday for a, a brain injury clinic in Coldwater, I believe. Um, but unless and until there's some rash of announcements that there's going to be a rampant closures, I, I, I think it probably will take that type of a crisis to force the legislature to do something. Well, the interesting thing here, Nancy, is Mr. Shirky's strategy of let's wait and see what happens could be a roll of the dice that produces some national headlines that would put mm -hmm. the Michigan legislature in the state of Michigan on, not on the front page the way they want to be. Exactly. Um, I think this is an interesting cautionary tale about uh, the specter of fraud. Um, this reimbursement rate was cut as part of this reform package because there was this belief that there was all this fraud and overbilling in the catastrophic care system. Um, and I think we've all covered politics long enough to know that when someone rolls in talking about how they're going to save a lot of money by eliminating waste and fraud, um, you should always roll your eyes a little bit because there's never as much as they're saying there is. And it's a nice, it's a nice thing to set up and say you're going to attack, but how does that really play out? Um, and I think what we're seeing here is that the system, you know, it'll depend, like Zach said, do, do care centers start to close? Do they stay open? But does the quality of care or the hours they're able to staff dramatically fall off? Um, how that all plays out um, should let us know a little something about whether or not fraud in the system was the, um, the boogeyman that it was set up to be in this reform conversation. One other point. Go ahead, Rick. Did you have one? I was going to say that I, I don't want to... Um... Uh, overstate this, but you know the signing that bill signing was supposed to be a setup 
for the relationship between Governor Whitmer and mm-hmm. the legislature, especially Republicans in the legislature. And I think the fact that we are facing this wall shows how ineffective that that particular um, tactic was because, you know, I mean, we've just seen deadlock after deadlock and, you know, here there are real and immediate stakes and there's been no effective discussions for fixing it. I think another thing is to to keep in mind is that, you know, um, Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan really wanted this reform. He campaigned on the idea of de-insurance, which was going to be more affordable auto rates for auto insurance rates for Detroiters. We pay the highest like in the universe. And I I don't really, you know, I've seen some research that that suggests that rates have dropped in some places. I don't think we have any real clarity on whether or not rates dropped meaningfully in Detroit in the highest build zip codes. And so, you know, if we've traded all this care, complicated this care system that I think was the finest in the nation, and I think the jury's still out on whether or not we got really meaningful rate reform for the people who needed it the most. Well, Zach, Tim, if I could jump in on that, yeah. I mean, you asked Mayor Duggan, I mean, a, a, a huge admission and concession this week at a news conference on a different subject with the governor sitting next to him saying that they failed. This statute, the no fault changes, failed to get rid of uh, territorial rating. That is the reason why people like Nancy, who live in the city of Detroit, are paying an absurd charge for their auto insurance. And I mean, I mean, I was just gobsmacked hearing him admit this. This was in large part, most of the democratic rationale for supporting this package. The governor and her Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist spent weeks bragging on that we finally got rid of rating by zip codes with the statute. But the thing was, and everybody knew it at the time, Yes, they got rid of rating by zip codes, but they put in, they allowed rating by territory. And so there's still this chasm in what Detroiters are paying for their insurance versus everyone else's. And what, you know, you could hear, you know, boy, a penny for the governor's thoughts as the mayor was, was saying this. Well, well and, and they eliminate, they eliminated uh, setting insurance rates by credit score, but they were able to still use credit report. So tell me your credit report doesn't have your credit score on it. I mean, Rashida Tlaib has at, in Congress um, talked about uh, legislation or has introduced legislation, rather proposed legislation that would eliminate using your credit score to set car insurance rates. There is no correlation between your your credit score and your likelihood of having a car crash. The correlation is between your credit score and your likelihood to make a claim. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a penalty for poor people. It's really outrageous. Um, and you know, that has to be addressed. And until that is addressed, I don't think there's going to be any meaningful decrease for people in Detroit. Um, I mean, but, you know, let's be honest, the car makers or the, I'm sorry, the insurance uh, companies are going to do whatever they can to keep those rates high. No one's going to, there's no, there's no realistic relief coming for that. And, and there never was. Before, we, yeah, before we call in our guests, let me make one other point, a stat that I saw a couple of weeks ago, that 70% of the people in Michigan have kept what was called the Cadillac coverage, which is the unrestricted, uh, unlimited pe- benefits if you're in a catastrophic uh, accident, which means we have another gap between the haves and the have-nots. Those that could afford that rich coverage have got it. Those that don't, don't, and they're going to be in deeper trouble health-wise as a result of that. So speaking of numbers, let's right, call How many in, of them live in urban areas? Yes, exactly. All right. Let's call in our guest today who talks about numbers all the time. Uh, and we're uh, Richard, are you there? How you doing? Good to see you. Nice to have you back on the program. Let's uh, let's talk about the 8 percent drop in support favorability that the governor got. Uh, is this fatal? 
Well, I think we need to put the number into some perspective. Uh, for during COVID, there was a rally around the flag moment. And that is a lot of Michiganders uh, liked what Governor Whitmer was doing because we were in a crisis. But she was around 59%, 58, 59% approval. And that's kind of unsustainable territory for a Michigan governor. We haven't seen that number very often uh, for Michigan governors. She's fallen back to 50. Uh, to put that in some perspective, in the eight years we polled on Governor Snyder, that was his high point. Uh, so the question is, where does she go from here? Uh, the voters are moving on from COVID, and I think they're going to judge Governor Whitmer by how she moves on, uh, you know, in the next year and a half. As I like to say, uh, voters judge you on your next crisis. Is it possible that the Whitmer camp went, whew, that was close. We thought those numbers would be lower, given all of the attacks that she has taken in incoming fire from the Republicans on the plane thing and the land shark stuff. Was that relevant in those numbers? Well, I think it was relevant. Uh, we don't know the extent to which it was, uh, but there's nothing worse than a self-inflicted wound because you did it to yourself. And in both of these cases, they are self-inflicted wounds. Zachary, how about you? Let me ask you this, Richard. Is it possible that Governor Whitmer's approval rating last year was overrated uh, by the pollsters? I mean, if you look at, you know, mo just about all the public polls had Joe Biden winning the state by eight to 10 points, had Gary Peters beating John James by eight to 10 points. These same surveys also had Gretchen Whitmer up, you know, at about 60, you know, 58 to 60 percent approval rating. Obviously, Biden ended up winning by about seven points less than what his polling average was. Gary Peters by about eight or nine points less than his polling average. Was this just a case of these? Maybe this is now uh, reality is is catching up here that the actual well, on the ground feeling. Well, I would say reality is catching up in that the kind of the rally around the flag moment is gone for the governors. They now have to govern without this crisis, uh, which helped prop up their numbers, I think. And it wasn't just Governor Whitmer. It was governors across the Midwest who have seen bounces in their numbers based on how they were handling COVID. Uh, in terms of, you know, the, uh, where the numbers overstated, uh, let's not confuse likely voter surveys with registered voter surveys. And I think that's what we're looking at right now is registered voter surveys. We haven't got to that point where we're screening people to see if they are going to vote in the 2022 election yet. So that's going to those those two different types of shirt surveys shift numbers a little bit. But I don't think it explains the full difference. Nancy. Um, can I ask about something other than the, the governor's approval rating? It's I a thought free, it's a free those... country. You still have right. First Amendment rights. <laughs> Go for it. I, I thought um, and we actually talked about this a little bit, Richard, that the most fascinating thing in there to me is that when you polled on what people think about election reform, they had very strong opinions about the various election reforms being proposed in Lansing, but 70% of them, those like 30% of people had very strong opinions because 70% of people had absolutely no idea that any of this was even happening. Well, yeah, I mean, I think this is a perfect example of Voters don't care how the sausage gets made. They just want to see it on the shelf. And when it comes to voter, you know, the voter reform bills that are moving through Lansing right now, voters aren't really paying attention. 
but we we tested nine different proposals that were in there. And you know, voters aren't opposed to all of them or for all of them. There's a bipartisan consensus towards some of these. And at the top of the list is this proposal that if you vote in person, that you need to present your ID, a government issued ID. And we found that at 79% support. And I think, you know, voters support it because they do it already. When they go in, they do it. Uh, but that support drastically drops on the question of sending in your driver's license for absentee voters. And, you know, there were some proposals that just bombed. So if there is a ballot proposal that moves forward from the Republicans, they absolutely need that, you know, present a government ID to vote in person as the hook for that proposal. Otherwise, any proposals on tenuous ground. Um, I'd like to jump in on that. And uh, I, I know that, that this is kind of nuanced and, and so maybe it didn't figure into your questioning, but one of the arguments about this is when you talk about voter ID laws is that voting, unlike driving, is a right, um, not a privilege. And was there any diving into that particular aspect of uh, voter ID laws? Uh, no, we didn't go into that. We wanted to ask just, I mean, given the fact that 70% of voters really aren't paying attention to this, you know, you are correct. That is a nuance. Uh, and it's an interesting nuance, but voters don't get caught up in this. Uh, they really just think, I've been doing this. This is perfectly natural to me. And they think, yeah, this is okay. But do the do the Republicans run the risk of going too far to hold back the people's ability to vote, the absentee stuff that's going on? Is there a tipping point where the public says, whoa, wait a second, this is now affecting me? Oh, I absolutely believe that's the case. And that's why I say if you take away this single issue that's at 79 percent supporting government IDs, many of these other issues fall flat. They, they will be hard pressed to get. Uh, majority support from voters. And, you know, one of the interesting things that I think everybody's missing in the absentee ballot uh, conversation is the strongest opposition to changing these absentee ballot rules comes from senior citizens. And those are the very voters who most rely on absentee ballots. And I find it interesting that we're not focused or talking to senior citizens about what they think the changes should be to absentee ballots, because they're really the ones who use it. And I think moving forward, they will continue to be the heaviest users of absentees. Zach? Where, Richard, where do you think the governor's most vulnerable right now? I mean, if you, we look, you know, look back at 2018 election, nine and a half point landslide victory, um, ran up numbers in a, in a lot of different areas. Uh, are you seeing signs of any you know, fall off? in areas where she was strong before? And, and generally, where do you think she's vulnerable? With what voters? Well, the, the, I think she's most vulnerable with independence. Uh, when you look at these numbers, you know, we looked at, this is the first time this year we've looked at what the dynamics look like going into 2022. And they look exactly like 2018 and 2020. The motivation to vote is still sky high. That has not changed. And, you know, both sides of the aisle have taken their corners. She's going to have Democratic support. They are lined up already. Republicans are going to be opposed to her, no question. But where are these independents going to go? And Michigan elections are decided by Southeast Michigan independents. 
I think if there's an area that surprises me uh, that she isn't putting greater focus on right now, it's frankly the economy. Uh, Michigan is a jobs, jobs, jobs state, and that's not going to change anytime soon. And, you know, I, I'm surprised not to hear more talk about the economy coming from the Whitmer administration. And, you know, I think Republicans are going to go after her. What's surprising in Mich is Michigan's unemployment rate is drastically lower right now than the national average, but you'd never know it from the conversation. Nance? Um, you know, in your poll, it was also clear that she continues to enjoy strong support from women. And in uh, 2020 and 2018, women really kind of kind of drove a lot of what happened, especially in 2020 when, I mean, suburban women, women in Oakland County, it, it really turned out, right? I mean, that was a bit part of the, the what happened there. Were those independents, were those Democrats who had set out for some cycles. What, what's going on there? And, and I'd love to hear more about your thoughts about her support among women and how that may play out in 2022. Well, you know, as I said, what we're seeing right now is the political dynamics have not shifted from either 2018 or 2020. And part of those dynamics are women strongly broke for the Democratic Party. Uh, I don't see that changing, uh, at least in the short term. And, you know, I think she's going to do well with female voters. It's part of her base of support. But from a geographic scale, you know, we talk a lot about, uh, you know, the Republican Party is talking a lot about their perception that, you know, there was fraud in this election. But what nobody's talking about is that, you know, there were 100,000 more voters coming out of Oakland County. Mm -hmm. There were 60,000 coming out of Kent County. And any Democrat that wins Oakland and Kent County by 130,000 votes is going to win the state of Michigan. It's quite frankly that simple. Uh, Republicans need to do better in those two counties specifically with suburban voters. And that's where I think the question of how do the Republicans play to women really is worth watching. That's going to be the determining factor. Richard, stay tuned. We're going to do an overtime segment with you if you're game for that, and I know that you are. And our panel, uh, take a deep breath. Uh, we're going to do some closed credits, then go to WKAR.org for more of our conversation. See you there. Production of Off the Record is made possible in part by the following. Business Leaders for Michigan has a strategic plan to make Michigan a top 10 state in the nation for jobs, personal income, and a healthy economy. Learn more at michigansroadtotop10.com. For more off the record, visit WKAR.org. Michigan Public Television stations have contributed to the production costs of Off the Record with Tim Skubik.